As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, your righteousness is righteous forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found us out, but your commandments are our delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give us understanding that we may live. With our whole hearts we cry, answer us, O Lord. We will keep your statutes. We call to you, save us that we may observe your testimonies, and hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Please turn with me in God's word to the book of John, John chapter 18. John chapter 18. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 1150 of many of the pew Bibles. John is the fourth book of the New Testament, the fourth gospel between the books of Luke and Acts. John chapter 18, and we want to consider this, as I said, in connection with uh, our consideration of thy kingdom come and all the different aspects of what we're asking in the Lord's Prayer when we ask that God's kingdom come. And so we're kind of doing a little bit of a mini-series through that uh, petition as part of our longer series through the Lord's Prayer. And so I want to think about this in connection with some of what we pray about the kingdom. So John chapter 18, and we're going to read the first 12 verses together of John chapter 18. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kindred, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Uh, John's gospel is a wonderful, wonderful account of the life of our Lord Jesus Christ and in many ways different from some of the other accounts. So it's been a wonderful pleasure to go through the book of Mark with you and to think about how Mark gives an account of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Luke is a little different in the way he goes about uh, the work of telling the story. It's the same story, the same true story. It's just told a little differently with a little different purpose. Um, And one of the constant themes that comes up in the gospel of, of John where are we? Gospel of John uh, is this theme of light and dark. Um, you might remember, if you know the beginning of the Gospel of John well, 
Uh, John, in his great prologue in John 1, says in verses 4 and 5, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Um, This, from the very beginning of his gospel, John is proclaiming two great facts about redemptive history in our Lord Jesus Christ. That he is the true light who has come into the world, and he shines in the darkness of a world that is opposed to him, but the darkness does not overcome him. Um, It's the story, the great story of the light triumphing over the darkness. Um, And that's a theme that comes up again and again throughout the Gospel of John. Uh, Think of some key passages that maybe we're familiar with. I'm just going to list Three, but John 3.19, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And Jesus in John 8.12 said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then John 12.46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Light and darkness, right? That's a theme that goes on throughout the gospel. And here in a profound sense, as these people come to arrest Jesus and to take him away to die for the sins of his people, we really see the forces of darkness coming and meeting Jesus who is the true light. Uh, They come at night in the dark to meet the Lord. Um, And this is a wonderful testimony to his power, testimony to the fact that he may give himself up to the darkness for a time to accomplish the purpose that his father has, he is never overcome by it. It's one of the important things we have to understand about the light of Christ in the world. It cannot be overcome by the darkness. For his purposes to redeem or to work in the world, he may allow it to seem as if The darkness may prevail for a time, but there is no time at which the darkness has truly overcome the light. And even as Jesus goes to be arrested and to go eventually to his cross and to his death, we're reminded here by John, even in his arrest, that this only happens because it is his will that this be done, that power and authority rests in the light and not in the darkness. Although the Lord permits himself to be arrested here, he is at no time overcome. The true light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome him. This has important implications for our prayer, uh, for the petition that we make in the Lord's Prayer. We confess in the Heidelberg Catechism that part of that petition is acknowledging how much we rely on the light of God to accomplish the work of the church in the world. Uh, What do we rely on the light of the gospel truth to do? We rely on it to preserve and increase the Lord's church. That's part of what we pray when we pray thy kingdom would come. uh, That God would preserve and increase his church. Um, We depend on the true light, the Lord Jesus Christ, for that to happen. Another part of what we pray in the Lord's prayer when we pray thy kingdom come, we're praying that the light would combat and destroy the darkness. Uh, We pray that you would destroy the devil's work and destroy every force which revolts against you and every conspiracy against your holy word. And this passage, I think, can give us hope as the people of God that our Lord Jesus Christ will do both. That he will preserve and increase his church 
as the true light shining in the world, and he will destroy every force that revolts against him and every conspiracy against his holy word. He will build his church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So how do we see that playing out in this passage? Uh, Well, first, by these seeking enemies who come seeking to take the life of the Lord. And then we see Jesus revealing himself as the sovereign Lord, who has all authority and power, but he also reveals himself to be the suffering servant that his people need him to be. And so that's why we want to think about this passage together, the seeking enemies, the sovereign Lord, and the suffering servant. Um, We have these enemies who come seeking Jesus in this passage, Uh, enemies who come, and it's good for us to be reminded who these enemies are. The first one we are told about by John is Judas the betrayer. Uh, In John's gospel, that's always how he describes Judas. He's always the betrayer. Um, He's described twice here, both times his name is used, John calls him the betrayer. Um, And here, finally, in the Gospel of John is that act of betrayal. When he comes leading, using the knowledge, the intimate knowledge he has as a friend of Jesus to bring this band of soldiers right to him uh, in the garden where he and his disciples are meeting. And he's acting as a guide to two groups of armed men to come and arrest Jesus. Uh, The first group of men is described by John as a band of soldiers. I think there's good reason for us to think that this is a detachment of Roman soldiers. Um, And as we go along, I'll also tell you why I think this is important, not just as a detail in the story. But I think this is a detachment of Roman soldiers. Northwest of the temple, there was the Antonia Fortress, where there was a Roman garrison of about 1,000 men, about 760 infantry and 240 cavalry, commanded by a military tribune. Uh, this is probably the military tribune that gets, or the same, that position, military tribune is the person that gets involved when the Apostle Paul is arrested in Acts 21 in Jerusalem. Um, this was a Roman fortress, and so the word here for a band of soldiers um, is really a cohort, which was a Roman uh, military term. A cohort was a technical term for a tenth of a legion. Um, and we read in verse 12 that the captain, the military tribune, has come out with the officers. So this appears in part to be a detachment of Roman soldiers in, in fairly significant strength that has come out to affect the arrest of Jesus. So there's one group of Roman soldiers who come to arrest him, and another group, we're told, is composed of temple officers, a temple guard from the, from the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees. We should think of them as a kind of private security force that was hired and maintained by the religious leaders to guard the temple and the temple complex. Uh, These are likely the same kinds of soldiers that Pilate refers to uh, when, you remember, the religious authorities come to Pilate wanting him to secure Jesus' tomb after Jesus died and wants Pilate to set a guard. And Pilate responds to them saying, you have a guard of soldiers, go make it as secure as you can. Um, The temple authorities had their own soldiers, their own officers, a private security force of their own. And Pilate is essentially saying, go use your own people to do that. Don't bother me with these things. Um, And so this represents all of these different kinds of groups coming to arrest Jesus. It's a large party of men uh, with weapons, probably as they're described, at least dozens, maybe even hundreds coming to effect this arrest. Um, And what are these enemies in strength seeking to do? 
Well, the first thing clearly that they're coming to do is to arrest Jesus. And I think such a large group comes because he's a popular figure and they fear that maybe there could be some kind of riot if they come to arrest him because he's so popular that they might need a number of soldiers to put down any kind of insurrection that might break out. I think that's why there are Roman soldiers. That's why so many of them are along. That's why they come at night, hoping that maybe there are less crowds to potentially deal with in this situation. Um, But their goal is to take Jesus into custody. And we know exactly what the temple authorities want to see done with him. They want him condemned to death, and they want the Gentiles to put him to death. Uh, That's the purpose. They come seeking Jesus. And we can imagine what a what a sight and, what those sights and sounds must have been like as these 12 men are in the garden um, praying and suddenly this great company of people with torches and lights come to arrest him and to take him into custody. It must have been quite, a, quite, a, quite an event to hear coming uh, to this place and to have take place. These are enemies that are seeking to come against the Lord Jesus Christ. From, a earth, from an earthly perspective, there's no way to resist this band of soldiers. Right? It's a group far too big for 12 men, right? Jesus and his 11 faithful disciples, to in any way effectively resist. From an earthly perspective, it would seem as if there's nothing they can do but be arrested and have this group of men do with them whatever they want to do with them. And that's what makes Jesus' encounter with them so interesting. Um, Because this group of seeking enemies come to the garden in overwhelming force, but they meet there the sovereign Lord. Right From an earthly perspective, it would seem that they've got all they need to affect the arrest, all they need to overwhelm Jesus and his disciples. But we know that one of those 12 men is also the Lord. And as John tells the story, I think what he wants us to understand is all these enemies come in force seeking the Lord, seeking to arrest him, seeking to take him into custody. And what John wants us to understand is the sovereign Lord cannot be taken into custody. The sovereign Lord does not have to submit to earthly authority. He has all authority and power. And the way John tells the story shows that the Lord has all authority and power. Um, The sovereign Lord is the one who speaks. The sovereign Lord is the one who initiates the encounter with them. Notice how this unfolds in verse 4. And then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Uh, Who knows everything that's about to take place? It's Jesus. Who's taking the initiative here? It's Jesus who steps forward. Who's asking the questions of this armed band? It's Jesus. Right? It might seem like they have the upper hand in all of this, but Jesus is the one taking the authority, taking the initiative, having the knowledge of what's happening here. He's the one who seems to be directing this scene. And he asks that question Whom do you seek? It's a challenge to this group of people. And they tell him, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And he responds in a way where something awesome happens. 
It's really interesting how Jesus, how this situation is described for us as Jesus replies to this simple question. Who do you seek? And Jesus says, I am he. And Judas, who, was, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. What's going on here? Um, why is this important as John tells the story? What does he want us to understand? I think in some sense he wants us to be reminded of what that name represents. Who do you seek? We seek Jesus. We seek Jesus of Nazareth. And who is Jesus? Um, Jesus is the one who was given that name by heaven at his birth. Right? The angel came and told Joseph and Mary that his name was to be Jesus. And why were they to name him Jesus? Because he would save his people from their sins. The name meant something. The name spoke of a savior. Jesus is the name not only of a savior, but a name that reveals what kind of savior he's come to be. In Matthew 1, they were told to name him Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And then Matthew goes on to say, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's not just the Savior, he's the Lord, right? He's God incarnate come into the world. And that's what I think is happening here in the Gospel of John. There is this moment where they ask him, who are you? Where they say who they're seeking and he responds and his response tells us who he is. Because as it's translated here, his response is, I am he. In Greek, if we wanted to translate it woodenly, all he says in reply is, I am. Who do you seek? We seek Jesus. I am. I am. What does that remind us of? Moses at the burning bush when he was being told to go speak on God's behalf to the people. And he said, well, what if I go and they don't believe me or they want to know who sent me? Who should I say sent me? And the angel of the Lord tells him, tell them I am sent you. Tell them I am who I am sent you. This is a clear statement of divinity. Jesus throughout this gospel has been saying things like, I am the light. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. But what does he say here? I am. And it's that statement that forces all of these forces that are against him to fall back, to draw back away from him, and to fall down before that testimony of who he is. And this is meant for the church in every age to remind us of who our Lord is and to remind us that he has all the power, that he has all the authority, that the word that spoke that name 
that caused that reaction among his enemies is the same Lord who still lives and who still breathes and who is still seated at the right hand of his Father in heaven. He has lost none of that power. It's enough to tell us who the Lord is and what is happening here. The light of the world is replying to the darkness and the darkness has not overcome him. It's a reminder to us, and I think it's important to recognize here are Romans, here are the religious authorities, here's a betrayer from inside his circle. These are all the kinds of enemies that there are of the church in the world. And we know that standing behind them is the devil. He's the instigator of all of this opposition. He's the encourager of all of it. So this scene is really presenting for us every kind of authority that can be in resistance against the Lord, every conspiracy against him and his word and Jesus. And when those two meet, who prevails? It's the Lord. He has the power. And that's meant to be an encouragement to the church that we hold on to this glorious reality in the world. Because the Lord who speaks is the one who steps forward and stands between his disciples and the forces of darkness. Stands out there and speaks in defense not only of the truth, but in defense of them. It's interesting that the first time he replies to them, it provokes this Amazing response that they draw, they draw back and they fall to the ground. And so then what does Jesus do? He asks them again, whom do you seek? And why does, he do, why does he ask that again? Is it to display his awesome power once again? To show his divine reality and initiative? No, he says it again to protect his people. Right? When he says, ask them again, who do you seek? Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. I think it's important for us to understand the Lord shines forth in this moment showing his glory to remind us just what kind of king we have in himself, that there is all the power he needs, that nothing in the world overcomes him or overcomes his people. That's why when Jesus is pictured for us in Revelation 19, when he's pictured as that white rider in power, He needs no other weapon but the sword that's in his mouth. It's John's way of telling us the Lord only needs his word. It's the only weapon he needs to vanquish all the enemies that are before him. But he shows himself in who he is in the first way he answers the question that he is the sovereign Lord. And he shows in the second way that he answers that he is the one who's come to be the suffering servant. The one who cares for his people and who dies for their sins that he might set the captives free. When we see Jesus in the second way he answers as the suffering servant, we see just how much he cares for his people. 
his purpose in asking that the second time is to defend his people. Right? Jesus says, okay, you've asked twice now. I asked you twice now who you're seeking. You said you seek me. If you seek me, then let everyone else go. Again, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? You would think you're in no position to dictate terms to this big group of people. Jesus is in a position to dictate terms. He is the Lord. And those are the terms he gives them. You let them go. And what is Jesus doing in this moment? He's preserving and protecting his church. Right? He's preserving it in the cradle. Here are the 11 apostles through whom Jesus is going to send his gospel to the ends of the earth. What does the devil always want to do? He always wants to try to kill the church in its cradle. If he could somehow destroy all of these men here with Jesus, there would be no apostles to send in the Great Commission. Right? The devil's always trying to work that way. The same way he tried to kill Christ in the cradle when he just came into the world through Herod. And this is a reminder that the Lord will not allow that. The Lord protects his people. The Lord preserves his church. He said this in order to fulfill the word that he had spoken. The word he had just spoken in John 17 in his high priestly prayer when he said to the Father, I've lost none of them. Here he is protecting and defending his church using that great power he has displayed to see that his people are preserved And he goes with these soldiers to go and suffer and die for them that they might be set free from their sins. That's who the Lord is. That's what he's come to do for his people. And in this way, the whole church is being preserved here. It's a sense we see of Christ's love for his people, for these people who will go and spread his church and the same love he has for these disciples he has for all of his disciples, all of his beloved people. We're being reminded that Christ has all the power that's needed to defeat his enemies in the world and to defend his people and to set them free. And that's why Jesus doesn't need help defending the church. Here, once again, we have poor Peter teaching us what we should not do. Um, maybe, maybe Peter is convinced by this display of the Lord's power when he reveals his name that this is the time to fight and this is the time to resist. So Peter has a sword and he draws his sword and he attacks and he, he offers a really effective blow for the kingdom, doesn't he? Um, no, he manages to cut off one guy's ear and not even an important guy. You know, he doesn't attack the military tribune. He doesn't take out a couple Roman soldiers. He manages to cut off the ear of some guy's slave. Um, I think this is a good image for what happens when the church tries to sort of take up arms and think we should fight in the world like the world fights. We're about as effective as Peter is with his sword. It's a weak, ineffective blow. Um, and Jesus rebukes him for it. And we know from the other Gospels, Jesus also heals the damage that Peter did. Um, Peter's telling, teaching us a lesson of what we ought not to do. Um, how do we destroy the devil's work? What's the most effective weapon we have in the world? It's prayer. To pray that God would do 
what really only God can do, which is destroy the devil's work and every force which revolts against him and every conspiracy against his holy word. I think it's why Paul needs to remind the church twice that this is not the battle we're fighting, that our enemies are not flesh and blood. And we don't need weapons for flesh and blood enemies. Our enemies are spiritual, and so we need spiritual weapons. Um, our, Our fight is spiritual. Our enemy is spiritual. Our fight is spiritual. We need spiritual weapons, and to be thinking about spiritual warfare, we're not to be thinking in terms of flesh and blood warfare. If we do, we'll probably end up being about as effective as Peter has been. And Christ rebukes Peter for what he's done. And his point to Peter is, I don't suffer on account of the betrayer. And I don't suffer on account of these Roman soldiers. And I don't suffer on account of this temple guard. I'm going to let them take me and do what they will to me. Because I'm here to do what my father has told me to do. It's again a wonderful reminder to us that the Father is dictating what happens in the world. The world doesn't get to decide what happens. The Father is deciding what happens. And Jesus is helping all of us to avoid Peter's mistake here and thinking that somehow they're taking Jesus and they're doing something to him. He's saying, no, this is the cup the Father has given me to drink. This is the Father's will. And he's telling Peter, I'm going to drink that cup because if I, don't have, if I don't drink it, you'll have to. If I wasn't the suffering servant, if I just struck out at them like a sovereign king, then there would be no salvation for you. But Jesus reminds us elsewhere, it's not for a lack of power that these things are happening to me. He tells Pilate that my kingdom's not of this world. If it was, you would all be in a lot of trouble because you have maybe about a legion of Roman soldiers. I can call lots of legions of angels that you would have no power against. It's not a power deficit. It's a will, and a will to do what? A will to be a savior, to drink the cup that the Father has given him to drink so that his disciples will never know what that cup tastes like. He suffers because it's the Father's will to save his people through the sacrifice of his Son and because it's the Son's will to give that sacrifice, to lay down his life as a ransom for many. This is the plan the Father has made since before the foundation of the world and the task that the Lord has undertaken to do before the foundation of the world so that those he's come to save could live in eternal blessedness and fellowship with him and his Father in glory forever. And if he doesn't do this, that can't happen. This is how the light overcomes the darkness. That's, I think, the hardest thing sometimes for the church to understand about why things happen in the world. That this is the way the darkness is overcome. And it's not always the way we would like to see the darkness overcome, but it is the way the Father has determined.
to overcome the darkness by the light of Christ. Um, And the cross of Jesus Christ reminds us that that's where the victory has been won. The victory has been won in the death of the Son of God on the cross and his resurrection for the justification of his people. That's where the victory is. That's where Jesus is going here to accomplish that salvation that Paul rejoices in in Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The enemies have been defeated by the death and resurrection of the Son of God. They are not yet completely destroyed, but they're defeated. And the fact that he's defeated them on the cross gives us hope for the future. Because as John tells us in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. This is his purpose. And in his life, we saw the accomplishment of that purpose beginning to happen when Satan fell like lightning from heaven and when the ruler of this world had been cast down. And so until the time of consummate victory comes when the Lord Jesus destroys the last enemies, let's live in hope as God's people and continue to pray that his kingdom would come in this world, that he would preserve and increase his church And that he in his time and in his way would destroy every force that revolts against him, destroy the devil's work, and every conspiracy against his holy word. That we might see that day when the light shines in the darkness, the darkness that has not overcome it, and destroys it utterly. May he speed that day. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for that glorious truth that Jesus is the true light, that he has come into the world, and that the reason he appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We thank you for his cross that speaks of the victory that has been begun by his death and resurrection, and of the consummate victory that is coming when he returns again to judge the living and the dead. We pray that your spirit would go forth, that while there is still time For those who do not know Christ, to turn to him and be saved, that you would be merciful and send your gospel to them. We thank you that you have preserved and increased your church in this world. We pray that it would continue to increase, that the gospel would continue to go forth, that people might hear and believe. And we look forward to that day when Christ will come and put put out every enemy out of this world, and nothing will be left but the light, and you will be all in all. We look forward to that day. Would you speed it, and would he find us faithful when he comes? By your grace, hear us, we pray in his name.